The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. Crash Investigation is no accident. It was the 13th of May 1912, a Monday, when a Flanders F3 monoplane took off from Brooklands in Surrey, a county of England. The grand site had opened five years earlier and was the world's first purpose-built banked motor racing circuit, as well as one of Britain's first airfields. The kidney-shaped track enclosed the grass area that the aircraft operated from, which was also bounded by the River Way, a narrow body of water that ran through the circuit towards Weybridge, where it would join Old Father Thames. As a boy, I had fished in that river, pulling little sticklebacks out to watch them swim around in a jam jar before sending them back to their homes. The pilot of the Flanders F3 was the aviation pioneer Edward Victor Beauchamp Fischer and his passenger, the American millionaire Victor Mason. Fisher had an aviator's certificate, the 77th to be issued, had learned to fly at Brooklands and was a flying instructor there. He had also worked with both A.V. Rowe, the founder of Avro, and Howard Flanders, whose monoplane he was flying at the time. The two men had made two or three circuits of the airfield at about a hundred feet, the 60-horsepower green engine operating well, when, in a left turn, the aircraft fell to the ground, killing both the aviator and his passenger before catching a light and burning. In the early days of aviation, such accidents were fairly common, but what sets this one apart is that it was the first in history to become the subject of an accident investigation by an official civilian body, the Public Safety and Accidents Investigation Committee of the Royal Aero Club. Not to say that other investigations hadn't been done previously, such as Lieutenant Frank Lamb's ad hoc report on the world's first death in a powered flight crash. That had occurred in 1908, when Orville Wright had taken Lieutenant Thomas Selfridge up in a Wright Model A for a demonstration flight. At a speed of about 40 miles an hour, and an estimated altitude of between 100 and 150 feet, Wright had heard a light tapping behind him. He quickly turned around and saw nothing wrong, but, as he later wrote to his brother, soon felt two big thumps, which gave the machine a terrible shaking. The airplane corkscrewed right and pitched up, rocking like a ship in rough water, one observer recalled, then nosed almost straight down. About 25 feet from the ground, the airplane began easing out of the dive. A few feet more, Wright wrote, and we would have landed safely. The skids dug into the ground and the airplane crashed with frightful force, a newspaper reported. Wright was quickly pulled from the wreckage, dazed from the pain of broken bones, but it took several minutes to free the unconscious, bloody Selfridge. 
He died in surgery about three hours later, the victim of a skull fracture. Lamb interviewed about a dozen spectators who gave the impression of being reliable witnesses, including Octave Chanute, one of the foremost aviation theorists of the day. Several of them verified what Lamb himself had seen, a chunk from one of the propeller blades break off during flight and fall to the ground. Lamb found and examined the broken propeller and took precise measurements at the scene. Based on Wright's recollections and the physical evidence, Lamb's conclusion was that the broken propeller had caused damage that rendered the airplane uncontrollable. Lamb wrote in his report, issued on February 19, 1909, the clicking which Mr. Wright referred to being due to the propeller blade striking the wire lightly several times when, the vibrations increasing, it struck it hard enough to pull it out of its socket and at the same time to break the propeller. Back at Brooklands, the Accident Investigation Committee had completed its first ever report. They had taken evidence from witnesses, the designer and manufacturer of the aircraft, as well as representatives of the maker of the motor. They concluded that the aircraft had turned through about 90 degrees in the horizontal plane, that its side slipped inwards, that it struck the ground head first with the tail practically vertical, that the velocity at the moment of striking the ground was very considerable, that the fire was subsequent to the fall and did not cause the accident that there was no reason to suppose that a structural failure occurred, that the aircraft had been flying tail down, that the engine was running when the aircraft struck the ground, that Mr Fisher was not incapacitated at the time, and that the passenger did not cause the accident. They concluded by stating that in the opinion of the committee, the cause of the accident was the aviator himself, who failed to sufficiently appreciate the dangerous conditions under which he was making the turn when flying tail down, and, in addition, not flying in a proper manner. A sideslip occurred, and Mr. Fisher lost control of his aircraft. It seemed probable that his losing control was caused by his being thrown forwards into the elevating gear, thereby moving this forward involuntarily, which would have had the effect of still further turning the aircraft down. Mr. Fisher was thrown, fell or jumped out of the aircraft when the latter was at a considerable height from the ground, and was found some sixty feet in front of the wreckage. In the opinion of the committee, it is possible that if the aviator had been suitably strapped into his seat, he might have retained control of the aircraft. The Civilian Aero Club Safety Committee investigated both military and non-military accidents, and shortly after their formation they gained the power to order a police presence at crashes to preserve the evidence, as well as providing evidence to the coroner's office. 
By 1913, they'd moved to Farnborough, where they took over a building adjacent to the Swan Public House. They became part of the Aircraft Inspection Department, under the auspices of the War Office, who also laid down orders for the conduct of investigations, in that the Chief Inspector of Aeronautics was required to report to them. By 1915, the post had become exclusively one of crash investigation, as the Inspector of Accidents, a post that has remained unchanged to this very day. By now, the renamed Accident Investigation Department had moved to London, and by the end of the war, the title had become the Accidents Investigation Branch, a name that we recognise today. It was a fully independent civilian organisation. Orders were promulgated by the government to ensure that crash wreckage was to remain undisturbed until the arrival of an accident investigation team. This sometimes meant that airfields remained littered with wrecked aircraft until a team could be brought to investigate the accident. Records show that in the Royal Flying Corps, 8,000 personnel lost their lives in flying accidents not related to combat, leaving some flying fields looking more like junkyards than military airfields. Before the end of 1918, the reassembly of wreckage was already a tool used by investigators to establish causal factors, leading the way for future methods of finding out the reasons for accidents. The Accident Investigation Department had been tasked by the British Secretary of War to look into the preponderance of accidents which featured monoplanes. Despite the design of single-wing aircraft being exonerated, Prejudice against them continued in the Royal Air Force right up to the Second World War, which accounted for an entire generation of slow biplane fighters entering service. These obsolete aircraft were slower than the bombers of the time, a ridiculous state of affairs. Finally, outdated thinking evolved to encourage the production of aircraft such as the Hurricane and Spitfire. 101 years ago, the British government issued the Air Navigation Regulations of 1922, formed pursuant under Section 12 of the Air Navigation Act of 1920. This formalised the organisation that had already existed and its standardised procedures. Accidents were first subjected to a preliminary investigation by the Inspector of Air Accidents, followed by a formal investigation carried out in court. Secondary proceedings were initially held in open courts, but became private in 1951, with only those reports the Secretary of State deemed necessary for publication made available to the public. Since then, Public access to accident reports has been improved and by 1969 all reports were made publicly available. Another interesting change that took place in the same year was the redefinition of the purpose of the board's investigations. 
The initial 1922 regulations allowed for a degree of blame to be ascribed, but now investigations are conducted with the primary purpose of avoiding future accidents. Despite some changes along the way, most of the initial principles have stayed the same, reflecting the commitment then and now to improving aviation safety through accident investigation. Most countries typically have a team of investigators at their disposal to research air crashes that occur in their airspace or involve their aircraft. In the United States, this role is filled by the National Transport Safety Board, NTSB, while its neighbours to the north have the Transport Safety Board of Canada, the TSB. The NTSB dates back to 1926, when the United States Congress charged the U.S. Department of Commerce with investigating the causes of aircraft accidents as part of the Air Commerce Act. That gave rise to the Civil Aeronautics Board's Bureau of Aviation Safety, which was created in 1940, that evolved into the NTSB following the consolidation of all transport agencies into the Department of Transportation. In 1974, it was recognised that the responsibilities of the Department of Transport, which affect safety, should be investigated by an independent organisation. As such, Congress established the NTSB as a completely separate entity outside the DOT, reasoning that no federal agency can perform properly such investigatory functions unless it is totally separate and independent from any other agency of the United States. Since its inception, the NTSB has investigated around 152,000 aviation accidents and thousands of surface transportation accidents. On call, 24 hours a day every day of the year, NTSB investigators travel throughout the country and to every corner of the world to investigate significant accidents and develop factual records and safety recommendations with one aim, to ensure that such accidents never happen again. The GO teams comprise specialists in fields relating to the incident who are rapidly deployed to the incident location. The teams can have as few as three or as many as a dozen people depending on the nature of the incident. They will usually include experts in cockpit voice recorder analysis, air traffic control, aircraft performance, human performance, human factors, metrology, flight data analysis, aircraft structure and parts, survival skills, maintenance and metallurgy. Following the investigation, the agency may then choose to hold public hearings on the issue. Ultimately, it will publish a final report, which may include safety recommendations based on its findings. Perhaps a surprise to some, the NTSB has no legal authority to implement or impose its recommendations. They are often implemented by regulators at the federal or state level or individual transportation companies, but they are not required to. 
However, the NTSB puts out a most wanted list of transport safety improvements which highlight safety-critical actions that others need to take to help prevent accidents and save lives. The third leg of the stool is the International Civil Aviation Organization, which, in Annex 13 to the Convention, lays out recognised standards and recommended practices for aircraft accidents and incident investigation. First adopted in 1951 following the Chicago Convention, the Annex outlines the standards and recommended practices that should be employed during accident investigations that are expected of member nations. It also defines such things as what an accident is, in that it is an occurrence associated with the operation of an aircraft which takes place between the time any person boards the aircraft with the intention of flight until such time as all persons have disembarked, in which a. a person is fatally or seriously injured as a result of being in the aircraft or direct contact with any part of the aircraft, including parts which have become detached from the aircraft, or direct exposure to jet blast, except when the injuries are from natural causes self-inflicted or inflicted by other persons, or when the injuries are to stowaways hiding outside the areas normally available to the passengers and crew, or b. The aircraft sustains damage or structural failure which adversely affects the structural strength, performance or flight characteristics of the aircraft and would normally require major repair or replacement of the affected component except for engine failure or damage. When the damage is limited to the engine, its cowlings or accessories or for damage limited to propellers, wingtips, antennas, tyres, brakes, fairings, small dents or puncture holes in the aircraft's skin, or C. The aircraft is missing or is completely inaccessible. ICAO gives all the help needed for a nation to compile a comprehensive report laid out in a logical manner and they also give a comprehensive list of measures which promote accident prevention such as a state should establish a voluntary incident reporting system to facilitate the collection of information that may not be captured by a mandatory incident reporting system. A voluntary incident reporting system shall be non-punitive and afford protection to the sources of the information. A non-punitive environment is fundamental to voluntary reporting. Over the years, the accident investigation organisations in most countries have ensured that a just culture exists within aviation that is the envy of many other professions. Put simply, under just culture conditions, individuals are not blamed for honest errors, but are held accountable for willful violations and gross negligence. It is often described as an atmosphere of trust, in which people are encouraged and even rewarded for providing essential safety-related information, but in which they are also clear about where the line must be drawn 
between acceptable and unacceptable behaviour. And so say all of us. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that at AirlinePilotGuy.com. And if you're listening to this, you'll already know that Plain Tales is a standalone podcast. And if you're interested in helping us along, why not go to Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice to leave us a review. Many thanks, and thanks very much indeed for listening.